Okay, welcome everybody. Um, thank you very much for coming along tonight to the event. I'm David Lewis from the Department of International Development and I'm going to be chairing tonight's event. So the music you've just heard is by Zoe and Idris Rahman from their Where Rivers Meet album. It's a song called O Nodire, O River. And Where Rivers Meet is kind of something that we are talking about this evening. Um, we're here to launch our new book, Better Mediums, Better Messages, How Innovations in Translation, Engagement and Advocacy are Changing International Development. And I'm happy to say it's an open access book, which means that you can download it via the QR codes up there. Um, and although I'm totally out of my depth on this, um, if you want to tweet tonight, you can, you can do that using the at LSE underscore ID Twitter handle. So let me encourage you to do that. Have I got that right? Musk Enterprise. Proceeds to So our book raises a number of issues about different kinds of knowledge representation in relation to development including through novels, art, radio, theatre, music, video games, and other non-standard forms of representation, at least non-standard to us academics, which we term in the book popular representations of development. Now our provocative title to, to uh, tonight's event, which is designed to get you in here, <laughs> is development an art or a science? Um, of course we recognise that it's both. And as Naila Kabir suggested to me the other day, perhaps it's also a craft. So the point that we want to make here is that this is not an either-or question, really. But our argument is that the art part has received insufficient attention and is always in danger of getting submerged. So what we're trying to do with the book is to probe a number of questions. What is gained by bringing in this notion of popular representations? Do we limit ourselves by prioritizing only certain kinds of knowledge? Do we need more diverse epistemologies in relation to development? And of course, this is also about um, you know, forms of knowledge and, and interdisciplinarity. And so we're also going all the way back to C.P. Snow's famous framing of the two cultures, the arts and humanities on the one side and the sciences on the other, and the fact that these barriers between these two ways of thinking about the world you know, cause problems, and we need, to, we need to recognize and perhaps overcome them. So that's what the book's about. The evening will proceed in this way. So first of all, we're going to have some brief 10-minute presentations from the book, and then we're going to have some discussion comments, and then I'm going to get brief responses from our panel, and then we're going to open it up to some questions and I hope some lively debate. So let me introduce our distinguished panel this evening. Um, let me begin with uh, Professor Dennis Rogers who is Research Professor in Anthropology and Sociology and the Centre on Conflict, Development and Peacebuilding at the Geneva Graduate Institute in Switzerland. 
Our next speaker is Emily LaRue Rutledge, who is a senior lecturer in social psychology at the University of the West of England. And um, Emily is going to talk to us uh, tonight about narratives of gender and development on global radio. Uh, Dennis is going to talk to us about our jointly authored piece on uh, music and development. And then we have Professor Maris Tadros, from, who is Professor of Politics and Development, an IDS research fellow specialising in the politics of human development in the Middle East. And we're very happy to have uh, Maris here from Brighton to um, offer some, you know, some further thoughts on the book. And then last uh, but not least, we have Professor Michael Woolcock, who is lead social scientist in the World Bank's Development Research Group. And Michael is going to lead us off and talk about how we came to be interested in this theme and what brought us to the work and the, and the issues here tonight. So let me hand over to Michael. Thanks so much, David. And thank you to all of you for coming along tonight and being part of this event, a long time in the making. We've uh, been working on this book for more than six years. <laughs> Some of it uh, extended just by the imperatives of COVID, but also because of efforts to try and bring together a very diverse group of people and to deal with the logistics of, uh, of creating a, the, the book in open access form so that everybody <coughs> could uh, be part of that. And it was frustrating at the time, but I think with the benefit of hindsight, we're very pleased that it was made, of, we had to actually by rule, as a World Bank employee, I have to make everything I write available in principle <laughs> in the public domain. And so having this book now available to everyone everywhere is, uh, I think, consistent with the, with the kind of messages that we're trying to convey in this book. Uh, in, in response to this opening question about whether development is an art or a science, uh, my instinct was to think, well, actually, develop, the right answer is that development is quintessentially social science. <laughs> we have social science because of development. development the, whole, the origins of social science was all about trying to apprehend and comprehend what was happening to, as, as societies were changing. And, that very quickly morphed into not only can we apprehend and comprehend, we can control. <laughs> and we can use, we can imagine that we have human and re reason and resourcing now at our disposal to be able to change history itself. And uh, that, that dance for social science or that pretension of social science has been its blessing and its curse from, from the get-go. And development, I think, manifests all of those kinds of symptoms. Uh, so, uh, I think it's also true that from the beginning, uh, art and science on either side of the social sciences was part of that conversation. You had the romantics from the beginning on the artistic uh, humanities space, uh, weeping and gnashing of teeth about what was being lost and what was what, what was what were the costs of, of all of this world of progress that was being uh, unfolding all around them. What, but there were gains, clearly, uh, but there were slums, there was diseases, there was a <clears throat> whole spread of enhancement of misery for many people. So uh, uh, that's just in the material space. But there was all the other ways in which life was being affected was very powerfully uh, shaped and reflected in the, the humanities, even as the sciences themselves were were creating a very a whole new way of making sense of what counts as a question and what counts as an answer when we're trying to make sense of the world. And I think we still, again, live with the legacies of those kinds of 
processes that uh, unfolded uh, across the centuries. This particular project, however, and this book is the, the, the second, effectively, uh, of, of our efforts to try and engage with these questions about how development uh, is rendered in different kind of epistemological modalities, which is a slightly fancy way of saying. Uh, we had a thought experiment that we began this with, and the thought experiment was, uh, if you could live on a planet where your only diet for understanding the problems of development was what you read in the Quarterly Journal of Economics and the, and the Journal of Political Economy, that was all you could read. What would you infer about the causes of poverty, the experience of poverty, the reasons why some people got out of it and others didn't, why it was eternal misery for other people, uh, why attempts to try and do this, uh, rectify this through human reason and resourcing so often didn't work. Uh, what, what kind of conclusions would you draw? On the other hand, if all you did was read a diet of glossy covered World Bank and United Nations Development Program books on this question, that was your sole diet. That, that was all you ate or read. <laughs> uh, what would you infer on the basis of all of that? And we then, as we want to do, sort of over, over this, this conversation involved over, over cups of coffee at a, at a coffee house, and what would it look like if you only read novels? If you were reading Dickens, if you were reading George Eliot, if you're reading a whole bunch of other novelists from all around the world, from different cultures, if that was your diet, what would you infer was the reasons why all this phenomena called poverty or development more generally looked, smelt, felt, tasted, such the way it did? And uh, then sort of being instinctively academic, we thought, oh, we should write a paper on this. <laughs> uh, what actually would the world be like if you then had it, what we're supposed to do in the real world, have a varied diet. You have an array of different food sources on your plate uh, during the course of the day, and your body is healthier for that. Maybe if you, if your, your development diet uh, wasn't just restricted to a very narrow epistemological entry point, but actually had different types of food on its plate, maybe you'd end up with a very different, perhaps healthier, perhaps more in enriched kind of way of apprehending this complex, wonderful, weird, good, bad, and ugly phenomena we call development. So that's how we sort of proceeded with this trilogy of papers that started off with the fiction of development that became then the projection of development on, on movies and then the sounds of development, which development, uh, which Dennis will talk about shortly uh, as our final one. <clears throat> but then re recognizing that we were just three small brains trying to apprehend a very big space, we needed to harness others into this task if we were going to begin this work of trying to extend the space within which we began to uh, encourage others to think about development more generally. But I think since we're instinctively academic, and this is LSE, and we're able to talk in more uh, formal terms, I think what we were really trying to do was to, to integrate very different uh, forms of order, <laughs> very different ways of making sense of the world, very different kinds of epistemological epistemic communities, so this is the formal term, <laughs> different groups of people that get to define what counts as a question and what counts as an answer. And when you enter through those different uh, spaces, you get very different understandings. Uh, Jim Scott famously distinguished between sort of vernacular order and then uh, official order, the, the world of uh, the life world, the umwelt, the, 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 the ways in which people experience life on an everyday basis and made sense of it and interpreted it to themselves across the generations and to their, their neighbors around them. The vernacular order often sat very awkwardly with official order, with the requirements, the rules, the laws, the standardization, the thin simplifications, 
all the work that was needed to be done in order to, in Scott's famous phrase, render legible all of this heterogeneity and turn it into something that could be managed, something that could be codified, something that could be financed, something that could be implemented through a policy apparatus of one kind or another, and then evaluated. And so there was this constant struggle between vernacular order uh, and official order. But by extension, I think there's academic order. The way we are talking right now is a very particular way of talking, which seems very bizarre to most people in the world. But we've all got nice educations. Everyone in this room has approximately 16 or maybe 18,000 hours of education in your life that enables you to apprehend what I am saying and think it's relatively normal, I hope. If I was to give this at a, at a bar in Newcastle, it would sound, sound a little different, right? Uh, and that not, has nothing to do with intelligence. It has everything to do with the ways in which different epistemic communities define what counts as a question and what counts as an answer and how they talk to each other about these things. So you have academic order, but then you also have popular order. You have the way in which all of this then manifests itself in, in films and, and, the, and the ways in popular mediums of consumption through which most people actually apprehend things that they don't otherwise engage in. So it occurred to us pretty quickly that actually if, if the uh, people outside of the more narrow academic or operational worlds of development were asked what they thought about this thing they had heard about called development or aid or humanitarian assistance or something else that was sort of uh, in the common uh, wheel, what would they say about it? What would they think about it? And they would, the only reference points they would probably have would be a diet of popular culture. That would be the world in which they would be drawing on. So they hear about corruption in Africa or something. Oh, yeah, we watched that movie Blood Diamond. And, you know, there's good guys and bad guys running around doing all sorts of old things. That's just millions and millions of people think that, watch that, and have little other dietary input <laughs> into their life. Just a thing other than that was a pretty cool movie with a pretty familiar plot line of good guys and bad guys and in groups and out groups and. Uh, a big drama with a hero that conquers everything at the end. Can we do better than that? Can, can we actually, when we're helping people who aren't specialists in this field, or this, this profession that we call development, can we expand that space and actually learn from the ways that others uh, engage with all of this? So that was really, I think, the, both the driving uh, sort of analytics that underpinned all of this work, but by extension, I think trying not just to have these sort of four categories, as it were, but more interestingly and more productively, trying to forge connection points between these and trying to play this translational role, which hence the, one of the words in the, in the title of, the, of this particular volume. Not just translation in the literal German to French kind of uh, transition, but a, a translation across these different vernacular, official, academic, and popular orders. How do, you, how do you make that kind of transition occur? And in normal social science, in the academic order in world, our job is mostly to turn all of the heterogeneity that we encounter in villages or in uh, economic growth rates into something that we can render legible to our way of thinking about things that makes perfect sense to us because we've learned how to do that. We've been socialized and trained and selected to do that kind of work. But it's much different when you try and put things in the reverse direction. What, are, what about poor people themselves? What about refugees? What do they apprehend about their world that is uniquely distinctive to how they talk to each other and how they experience things, that our, for which our social scientific tools are just crude, clumsy mechanisms for le rendering legible? Can we see that this is a problem for us, not for those that we are trying to engage in? What kind of work do we need to do in order to be able to more accurately apprehend their world on their terms and not just ways that happen to get us publications in nice journals and to be write policy implications papers for 
what is left of Diffit. <laughs> um, so that's, those, are, those are the kinds of challenges that we're wanting to put forward to people, is to, to recognize that the vernacular order has its own logic. <laughs> it has its own way of thinking about things. We don't need to privilege it. We don't need to romanticize it as being something that we should privilege over others. We just need to recognize that that is a very distinctive way of making sense. That's how most people make sense. It's how we make sense of our own worlds, is through a vernacular order that only we in our household perhaps understand. So can we do a better job, actually, of taking the sociology of this much more seriously than we often do? How are these sociology of knowledge claiming apparatuses of one kind or another structured? How can we forge dialogue across those? Let me just give one example to finish from the book itself, which I think is a really it's a little vignette that my, my colleague Caroline Sage uses in her chapter to show just how intriguing this clash of orders can be. Caroline, my wonderful friend and colleague, works for many years in both Nigeria and in Nepal. And in Nigeria, uh, she spent most of her day with one particular uh, senior guy in the, in the Nigerian government, and it was their job you know, three times a week to ch check in and have very seemingly normal conversations about how development work was going, how the projects unfolding, and you know, the procurement systems all doing what they're supposed to do, all a very normal chit-chat where the order of discourse was perfectly well understood by both sides and a very normal set of uh, just conversations and work was being done. Um, Caroline's also married to a documentary filmmaker and so on weekends she sort of hangs out with a much more artistic kind of crowd. She uh, uh, gets invited to all these arts festivals, for example, where they're a very different modality for talking about Nigeria. Uh, starts to emerge. Not the, not, the, not the official order of document reports and not the academic order of nice papers that are going to be written about the state of governance in, uh, in, or uh, politics in, in, in Nigeria, but the a vernacular order, at least the vernacular order of an upper class, the, the group that gets to actually go to, to, uh, to arts festivals and talk about themselves in a particular way to themselves and by extension to others. Uh, but as you would uh, expect, perhaps, there, at the arts festivals, there is a, a keynote speaker that is invited to come along and, and uh, say nice things. Oftentimes, a, a famous filmmaker of one kind or another who has their moment, everybody goes crazy and says, this is wonderful, thank you very much. On this particular night, though, the keynote speaker was none other than her government interlocutor, the guy that she works with three days a week, who didn't know that she was in the audience. <laughs> So this guy is dressed completely differently. He's out of his three-piece suit that he wears on uh, Monday to Friday. He's dressed in much more traditional Nigerian garb. Stands up in front of this audience of several hundred people and starts to give a rant, a railing speech about the evils of multilateralism, about, this, about the way in which the international agency is screwing them over, uh, that it's awful, we should be taking control of this ourselves, and that Caroline's like, so having to suppress her laughter and then sort of thinking, wow, wow, what's going on here? Like, who's, who's, which, which is the real version of this guy? Is he performing now to the crowd because he knows this, this is red meat to a group that will sort of love everything he's saying? He's not actually meaning it, but he knows this is really good entertainment, so he's going to say it. Or is this actually an impassioned speech from the heart that he's really concerned about? This is finally his moment to be free in a space with his own people where he can talk about this stuff in, a, in an open and, and, a, and a, you know, open way. Or is it the other way around? He's actually, is, he, is he actually uh, a different kind of person almost that he has to the be in this different kind of space. So here was a clash of sort of the, so the, 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 the official order world of Monday to Friday coming in clash with a, diff a very different in uh, ordering of speech that is required in the popular domain. And <clears throat> the, the, the point of her article was, well, do we have to, is that, why do we have to be schizophrenic? Why do, why do we have to live these 
very separate kinds of modalities and existences. Why can't we construct a space where you can be authentic in both of them and you can uh, express yourself in your own way in these very different spaces, but do so in, in constructive and informed ways without privileging one over the other. So I think this is kind of, that's a, 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 a captured moment of a broader phenomenon that I like to think this project in this particular book, but hopefully anything else we might do in the future will help to do this, both of our naming and articulating this whole uh, different orderings of, of, of interaction, but ultimately trying to find more uh, informed and constructive ways of bringing them together. Thank you. Thanks very much, Michael. And I think that, that phrase, what counts as a question, what counts as an answer, really sums up what we're trying to do here with this book. So moving on, I'm going to now turn to Dennis Rogers, who's going to talk to us about the chapter in the book concerned with music and development. Right, thank you very much, David. And before I start on that, let me just say how delighted I am to be here and to also thank you and Anna for, since you've really borne the, the brunt of the organization of this event. Um, and I also think it's particularly appropriate to be here because what Michael didn't mention about the thought experiment is that actually it took place just around the corner from here. Um, and all, even more so, it was actually prompted by another experiment that was ongoing. Um, with, that I was carrying out with DV400 students. Um, for those of you who are not familiar, DV400 is the core course in development studies here at the, um, at the LSE, where students had approached me and we were collectively trying to put together a list of alternative readings that were not dry and boring. Um, so from that, and that was I think in 2004, um, so this has been a really quite long burn project, shall we say. And um, so I'm going to talk to you a little bit about the chapter that um, I've co-written with David and Michael, which um, is a reprint of a 2021 article published in the Journal of Development Studies, which, as Michael says, is a third in a triptych. I mean, it wasn't necessarily planned as a triptych, but it became a triptych, um, with the first on literature and development, the next one on films and development, and this one entitled The Sounds of Development explores the different ways in which the experiment, the, the experience of development, as well as understandings of and responses to it, have often been uniquely rendered via music. In broadly speaking, what our chapter does is try to make the case that music is a useful but largely unexplored repository of knowledge about development that also critically helps to shape the ideas, perceptions and practices of development. Now, in the article, we, or in the chapter, we discuss the relationship between music and development in relation to five specific domains. The tradition of Western protest music, musical resistance in the global south, music-based development interventions, commodification appropriation, and finally, music as a globalized development vernacular. Now, I obviously don't have time to go through all of these in the seven to eight minutes um, that I have been allocated to talk. So I'm only going to mention a couple of examples that we discuss in the chapter before focusing on some of our broader conclusions. And I'll begin because it's obviously something that a lot of people can relate to with the issue of protest music, um, which has a long and popular history, particularly in the West, notably with the music of Joan Baez or Bob Dylan, for example, in North America, John Lennon or Leon Russelson in the UK, or Leo Ferré or Georges Brassens in France, amongst others. And all of these artists produce music that serves as channels to communicate about a range, a range of different ideas about issues of inequality or injustice to mass audiences. 
Take, for example, Bob Dylan's 1983 song, Union Sundown, which offered a critique of globalization <coughs> centered around the fact that many consumer items bought in the US were beginning to be made elsewhere, relying on cheap labor and exploitative working conditions. A line in the song goes, you know capitalism is above the law. It's say it don't count unless it sells. When it costs too much to build it at home, you just build it cheaper someplace else. Probably a much more succinct summary of some of the problems of kind of globalization than many of the extensive and verbose books and articles that have been published about it. Moving from the economic to the more explicitly political, the Canadian activist and singer-songwriter Bruce Cockburn's song, If I Had a Rocket Launcher, dealt with the outrage and anger at the injustice of the US involvement in the civil wars in Nicaragua, Guatemala, or El Salvador during the, 19, during the 1980s. Now, it had a huge influence due to the fact that it was one of the first major MTV videos to come out, which also starts telling you something about the impact of the medium. I can guarantee you, as somebody who works in Central America, in Nicaragua, that kind of consciousness about the wars, the civil wars in, in the, the region in the 80s was kind of relatively limited in terms of the small fringes, perhaps people who were mobilized, who were active. And this song touched a much wider range of people, and particularly demographic as well, um, that would not have actually heard about it uh, otherwise. Now, we discussed these and other examples in our paper, and also the relationship between protest music and more contemporary music initiatives in the West explicitly aimed at raising awareness and shifting public opinion, such as Live Aid or Band-Aid, or even, for those of you who are perhaps too young to remember Live Aid and Band-Aid, Comic Relief. At the same time, in our paper, we also contrast the Western experience with the tradition of protest music in the Global South, and in particular, the way that the latter has been often very associated with anti-imperialist and decolonial struggles. The Nicaraguan Revolution of 1979, for example, was inextricably linked to the protest and then revolution-supporting songs of the Mejia Godoy brothers, Luis and Carlos, as well as the Catia and Salvador Cardenal, sister and brother Guarda Barranco would do well. Similarly, in South Africa, the singer-songwriters and activists Johnny Clegg and Sifu Nchunu combined Zulu styles with Celtic folk to challenge apartheid in South Africa during the 1980s with their multiracial band, Juluka, while the Miriam Makeba song, Soweto Blues, about the 1976 Soweto uprising and its brutal repression, became one of the anti-apartheid movement's anthems. To this extent, the idea of protest music in the Global South can be approached perhaps differently to that in the Global North, which is often just seen as about raising awareness. Not so much as intentional attempts to raise awareness or shift opinions, but rather situated within the wider frame of music as reflexive of social values and as a site of cultural resistance. Music can be said in some ways to become a site for both the construction and contestation of post-colonial identities. For example, music and politics have long been interwoven in Ghana, including in particular with the country's liberation struggle. More specifically, the country's famous high-life music style shifted in content during the 1950s to reflect support for Kwame Nkrumah's colonial, uh, sorry, movement of national self-determination, rather than focusing on slavery and colonial oppression, which had previously been its central privileged topic. In many post-colonial settings, 
Music is often a site of ongoing contestation over the direction of what we might call national development processes. Senegal's Geji Hip Hop collective of female rappers, for example, can be seen as a site of resistance to gender violence and cultural stereotyping, <coughs> while in the US, also a developing country, gangster rap has long been a source of, um, of critical comment about enduring discrimination, racism, and police violence. Seen from this perspective, to understand processes of development and change within post-colonial societies, there clearly is value to broadening the frame of reference to include music and its associated tropes and identities alongside the more usual elements of economy, politics, or civil society. Now, the value of music is also clearly more instrumental, so to speak, when we consider music-based development interventions. There are as yet relatively few of these kinds of interventions, but one interesting and successful initiative was part of the World Bank's peace-building work in Aceh, Indonesia. Following the forging of a peace agreement between Acehese secessionists and the Indonesian government after many years of violent civil conflict. The peace agreement was negotiated and signed in Finland and in some ways felt quite distant from Acehese society. It left Indonesian Acehese officials with a rather daunting task of not merely conveying the news that there was a peace uh, deal, but actually talking to a generally quite skeptical population about the details of the agreement and trying to credibly convey its legitimacy. And also doing so not just in terms of the Acehese population, but all the stakeholders in the, um, in the peace agreement. Now, a two-part communication strategy was implemented. On the one hand, there was a mass printing of the peace agreement, um, which was distributed in such a way that every household in, Indonesia, in Aceh could have a copy, of a physical copy of the peace agreement. Mm. On the other hand, a popular Chinese musician was hired by the World Bank to produce a rap song consolidating and celebrating the end of the Civil War. <coughs> now, the song's words weren't, were drawn from Chinese school children who were asked to submit a sentence summarizing what the peace agreement meant to them. And the musician then arranged the best of these into a catchy song, which was then recorded and played quite continuously across local radio stations, becoming a huge hit in Achi. So here we can say that the medium and the message aligned in very fraught circumstances. Both domestic and international actors used um, or drew on credible, lo locally credible people, a musician and children, credible content, words penned by children, and a, a particular communication tool, an original, memorable Achenese song, to disseminate and legitimize a peace agreement that endures to this day. Now, part of the reason for this is arguably the very nature of music as a form of communication or a vernacular, if you will. Music clearly derives its distinctive power and influence by harnessing and generating shared memories, experiences, primal emotions, perhaps especially those emotions uniquely encountered and amplified collectively. It could be said that music therefore creates a sense of solidarity and connection to the other. It's rather salutary to see that music forms travel well, are heard, appreciated, appropriated, even across different contexts. Gangster rap moves very well from the US to West Africa. Narco corrido songs from Mexico to Spain. Bollywood tunes from India to the UK. 
In a broader academic context, marked by a so-called ontological turn, suggesting the incommensurability of cross-cultural communication, this perhaps hints that music might hold a particular power to communicate meaningfully across contexts about key existential issues that other forms of human expression might not do as well. And ultimately, it's this that underpins our case for taking music seriously as a realm within which potential, potentially important claims about development are made and contested. It is this that makes music such a powerful global media, along with the fact that it is a form of popular culture that is often more attuned and resonant with the lived realities of subaltern groups. It is this that allows music to convey ideas and concerns about development so well and so lively, so widely, sorry, and lively, of course, across economic, <coughs> political, and cultural differences, as perhaps one of the few forms of common language that we all share. And this is precisely what potentially imbues it, music, with such developmental power. It makes a unique entry point into the experience of development, power, uh, development <coughs> processes, whether as a means of championing and resisting development practice, as a contributor to implementing development outcomes, or by enabling groups to make and defend claims about themselves, their rivals, their concerns, their interests, aspirations, and priorities in ways that they find most resonant and compelling, and that we also find resonant and compelling. Thank you very much, Dennis. Let me commend you on boiling down our quite a diverse and wide-ranging paper into a, a short but still coherent form. Thank you. So we're going to move now to our third presentation from Emily Ratlich, who's going to talk to us about narratives of gender and development on global radio. Um, let me just first start by saying it's a really great pleasure to be here. Um, I finished my doctoral work here in 2017 and I haven't been back for a very long time, but nice to see this amazing new building. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I'm going to start with a few reflections on the central question of the panel and then a little bit of detail on my chapter. So we're here thinking about the question, is development an art or a science, which is a bit of a provocative question and I don't purport to have an answer to that question. But what I would say is that storytelling, which some might consider to be an art, or I like the idea of it being a craft, um, is as important to development as, most, as it is to most human endeavor. So I'm a social psychologist, and I look at how human beings tell stories to create meaning. It's been argued by the likes of Brunner and such that narrative is the central way in which human beings create meaning out of an overwhelming overload of information that they're confronted with every day. And insofar as development is a data-driven science, I would argue that it's potentially not the data itself, but the stories we create from the data that matter and that then drive action. And stories can exist at different levels. So you can have an individual story with very specific details and for information that's unique to that individual. But you can also have overarching what some have called script structures, story skeletons. In my work, I've called these public narratives. And in media literature, they're typically called frames. And they give a shape to the way that stories about a phenomenon get told. So my chapter in this volume is called Women Saving the World, Narratives of Gender and Development on Global Radio. And as the title suggests, the chapter seeks to explore representations of women and development on global radio. Why women? Why global radio? Well, 
Development has a long history of trying to so-called empower women through radio. Radio is more readily available than other uh, forms of media. It's pervasive. At least 75% of households in so-called developing countries have a radio. It's portable. You can listen to it while doing other things. And it can be easily understood by those with low levels of literacy. And as such, for decades now, um, international development actors, UNESCO in particular, have used women's community radio stations as a tool for so-called women's empowerment. They train women up in local community radio production as a means to amplify women's voices, enabling them to raise concerns in their communities. And there's a rich and varied literature on the impacts and challenges of this, which I, which I detail to some extent in the chapter. But rather than reproducing that literature, which as I say I summarize in the chapter, I then turned to a little explored radio format. Rather than local community radio, I chose to look at global radio, by which I mean transnational publicly funded radio services such as the BBC World Service, which are designed for an international audience and are not seen as explicitly engaging in, context, uh, in content production for Big D development. Nevertheless, such radio contains representations of women and development. And what I look at in the chapter in particular is something called the BBC's 100 Women series. This is a radio series that goes out for two weeks towards the end of the year during what's called the BBC's Women season. The series was launched in 2013 following the infamous gang rape of a female student on a Delhi bus, which in the words of the series editor, prompted me and many other journalists to think about how we cover news stories about issues that particularly affect women. Content goes out on various platforms, most notably the BBC World Service, a radio station that reaches roughly 4% of the world's population weekly. So I analyzed content from this series uh, from the 2015 and 16 seasons. Um, and the series doesn't focus exclusively on women from so-called developing countries. However, I mean, it has you know, interviews with famous actresses and things. But many of the episodes and stories do look at the lives of women in or from low and lower middle income countries. And in fact, exactly half of the, um, the episodes I looked at in that sample uh, mentioned a low or lower middle income country. So I focused exclusively on those episodes. And I found that there were two overarching story structures or narrative frames in the first, a woman was depicted as a local phenomenon, and in the second, as a global success. And I'll read to you the local phenomenon narrative and then play you, if it works, a short excerpt to give you a sense of what that looked like. So in the local phenomenon narrative, a young woman or a group of young women from a low or lower middle income country, motivated by a desire to forge their own path in the world, to help their family and to make a contribu positive contribution to their society, embark on a quest for employment or entrepreneurship in their country in a traditionally male-dominated field. They work extremely hard and are supported along the way by older female role models from their country who have themselves been pioneers for gender equality in the chosen field. They are also helped by the private sector and by supportive male partners who believe in gender equality. They are not helped by the government and must overcome this hurdle. At first, men in their society discourage them, then are astonished by them, and finally afford them a measure of respect. 
As their quest progresses, they grow in self-confidence and self-esteem. Their goal, although seemingly at odds with traditional views of femininity and motherhood, turns out to be entirely compatible with such views. The outcome of their quest is uncertain, but ultimately they have laid the groundwork for the women of their country who will come after them. So that is an overarching story structure that I saw in multiple episodes of the series, and I'll try to play a short clip just to give you a sense of what that sounded like. So this is the mama ope application. It symbolizes hope for the mother. So what he does is he diagnoses pneumonia in young children at a very early age. And why pneumonia These bright young women have been brought together by the Resilience Africa Network, a group of African and global universities using technology and innovation to strengthen the resilience of African communities. And they're brimming with ideas to tackle some of the big development challenges that Uganda faces, from health to agricultural production and the delivery of public services. So for this final program in the Young, Geeky and Black series about black computer coders here on the BBC World Service, I've come to see whether Uganda's young tech entrepreneurs, female and male, can offer the country a fast track to development. Our vision for this is that Number one, we'll have more girls interested in seeing themselves in the technology and innovation space. Number two, that we can get more recognition for the role that science and technology and innovation can play in the development of our countries. And of course, the bigger vision we see out there is that we are able to strengthen the resilience of African communities and that there is equity in participation by both male and female. Dorothy Okello's eyes sparkle as she talks. She wears many hats, a lecturer, an engineer, a mother, mentor, and the director of innovation at the Resilient Africa Network. And she's evangelical about the difference that technology can make. How did you feel listening to the presentations? One word, excited. You see them now taking ownership of their ideas, knowing that we've called them to pitch because we believe in what they have to say. We need to get more girls switched on in terms of the change they themselves can create, believing they can solve their community's problems. That, for me, gets me up every morning. And these young women are certainly switched on about programming computers. On some days, I just want to write code to relax a bit. You write code to relax? Yeah. <laughs> How do you relax writing code? It's fun, it's fun. Thinking of filtering numbers is stressing me out already. <laughs> what value do you bring to the, the coding scene, to the technology ecosystem? I think girls are more creative, they are more analytical. More than, okay, men. Ouch! <laughs> so I think they would really do things like which are not really for getting money but for improving the community where they live. For these All right, I will stop the clip there, but I think hopefully that gives you a sense of the flavor of the kind of content that I was talking about. Um, the second frame, which I won't play you a clip from, but I'll just summarize for you, was the narrative of a woman who was a global success. And in this narrative, a young woman from a low or lower middle income country chooses to leave or is forced to leave her country. She makes her way to a developed country where she is startled to experience racism and prejudice. 
Nevertheless, through sheer determination, she excels in her education and goes on to pursue a career in a field that is male-dominated or not typical for those of her nationality or ethnicity. In the course of her career, she encounters prejudice, but achieves considerable professional success by working extremely hard. However, she never forgets the country of her birth, and motivated by altruism and a sense of justice, she ultimately finds a way to help the people of her country. So the first thing that comes across clearly is that both these story structures, local phenomenon and global success, uh, position women as saviors. The positioning of women as saviors in international development discourse has a somewhat complicated history. Um, academic literature on development suggests that women were traditionally presented as victims, and this depiction has roots in colonialism and was a prominent in pre-1970s development discourse. Um, the problem, of course, is uh, that um, in drawing attention to the structural inequalities women face, this downplays their agency and can be viewed as post-colonial and patriarchal. And it homogenizes women in development contexts, representing them as a single powerless group, as per classic critiques by Mohanty and such. The alternative that emerged in the 1970s was a savior depiction, um, which emerged after um, uh, Bostrup's critique. Um, and in this story, women are seen as an, a saviors, an untapped resource which need only be invested in by NGOs and development agencies. Because of their intrinsic altruism, they will lift their families and their communities out of poverty. And this presentation, while perhaps responding to some of the critiques of the victim presentation, is also argu arguably problematic, according to post-colonial feminist scholars, in that positioning women as saviors, it instrumentalizes them as tools for development and suggests they are all inherently noble and self-sacrificing. It also appears to let men off the hook as they are not perceived to have the same altruistic qualities as women and therefore cannot be expected to work collaboratively towards poverty alleviation. And the depiction further positions women as active choice makers, ignoring many of the structural barriers that restrict their choices, and last, ignores a more human rights-based rationale for equality between men and women. So what does the 100, series, uh, 100 Women series do well? Well, one thing I think it arguably does well is it foregrounds women's voices, a trait that it shares with local community radio. Admittedly, these are not always the voices of the most marginalized women in society, but women are at the center of the story in this series. It also decentralizes Big D development in an interesting way. Um, I found that it actually changes the savior narrative somewhat, largely eliminating the role of development organizations completely, so that women become the engines of small d development, which is a broad sort of historically complex process of change that's naturally occurring. What it potentially does not do well is that in, uh, despite decentralizing development institutions in the narratives it presents, it still depicts the women as saviors, reproducing many of the existing tropes about women in development. It seems that both the journalists creating the series and the women themselves who speak on it have been influenced by commonly shared narratives about women, leading to stories in which women are presented as altruistically driving development for the benefit of society and taking on new economic roles and responsibilities while simultaneously managing old ones. Nowhere is there an acknowledgement of the double burden this places on women to continue their unpaid domestic labor while taking on paid work, something which feminists have long commented on. And also potentially problematic is the way in which men in the series are depicted either as supportive male partners who are ostensibly just waiting around for empowered women that they can view as equals, 
or as patriarchal gatekeepers who are eventually brought around by women's outstanding, outstanding performance in traditionally male-dominated fields. Both of these depictions suggest that women's fates ultimately hang on the grace and favor of men. Finally, potentially problematic is the way in which multinational corporations <coughs> in the private sector are depicted in the series as the ideal institutional <coughs> partner, partners for women undertaking development, which has also been critiqued by post-colonial feminist scholars. So I argue in the end that despite laudable aims, the 100 Women series doesn't appear to have majorly subverted tropes about women and development <coughs> that are currently pre prevalent in development discourse. Rather, it has reproduced the savior narrative about women and development, along with a number of accompanying problems. And that by continuing to produce stories depicting women in these savior roles, it's um, potentially undermining its ability to say something truly transformational. Thank you. Thank you very much, Emily. Now, uh, our final uh, speaker is uh, Marius, who we've given the rather unenvied task of providing some discussions, comments on what is obviously a wide-ranging and diverse book. But um, it, 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 we're really looking forward to just hearing some of your reactions to the book project. So please take as much time as you need to... Oh, no, I think you'll regret that. No, take that back quickly. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, congratulations to the editors and the authors. This is an amazing book, and it's great that it's open access. Yay! Um, to everyone. So, uh, how to, how to the I think this is, this, is, this is a very hard act to follow. And I'm going to try and be brief and stop me in 10 minutes, please. But I think there's a, there's a fantastic phrase in this book. Page 11, um, where it says that the, the book endeavors to broaden the canvas. And I think this is a fabulous phrase because that's exactly what it's doing. And it's trying to, to not say everything that has happened before needs to be eliminated for a new academic narrative, but that there needs to be some um, accommodation of multiple ends, multiple ways of looking at change and, and, and looking at it from not just from a multivocal perspective, but looking at it from the perspective of different pathways of seeing what change means. It's also about the meaning of change, not just the, the means of bringing about change. Um, but it's coming at a very critical time. It's coming at a time when we know aid regimes, part of them are being eroded. Um, in this country, uh, uh, aid has been put as being frozen since May of this year. Uh, we know that other aid regimes in other countries are now being frozen or being chipped at. It's also coming at a time in which, according to Freedom House, and yes, we all know the problems with the methodologies of Freedom House, but even so, um, it is saying that um, democracy has been, uh, or democratic governments are on the decline for the last 15 years, 15 years of consecutive years of democracy being on the decline, and that the number of countries that are experiencing deterioration, deterioration are outnumbering those that are experiencing improvements by a large margin since 2006. So we're talking here about encroaching spaces, 
um, which necessitate that we look at how do people organize, how do people subvert, because we know that people's agency has not been eliminated with the circumscribing of democratic spaces. It just has to metamorphose. It has to take different forms and different expressions. So in a way, we, we, we cannot not afford to broaden the canvas because on the ground, people are having to try and find ways of subverting their realities because the conventional pathways of protest, of um, open um, uh, mobilization can quickly be eliminated, even digital spaces, which was celebrated at the time of the Arab uprisings as a, a panacea for people to express um, dissent when in securitized spaces. We now know that around the world, um, the uh, secret police are now sending polite reminders to people on their Facebook, kindly be informed you have an appointment at the, you know, at the apparatus at 9 p.m. at so-and-so place. Uh, yours uh, collegially, uh, sergeant so-and-so, officer so-and-so. Um, so we also know that security apparatuses have used digital spaces very effectively to be able to find out who's organizing where. So the idea of um, subversion and where does subversion happen and how does it happen is really important. I think this is where this book is so crucial because in so many parts of the world, um, the conventional ways of resistance um, people have to constantly adapt to very difficult realities. Um, so in this context, three takeaways, three things that I found are really crucial independently of whether you are sitting here or whether you are sitting in a deeply circumscribed space. Um, and what does it do for us? Well, I think the first is going back to the idea of helping us to think about development in a broader canvas, in what does, does it mean, what does it look like beyond some of the more conventional modes that we have come to be accustomed to engaging with. Um, in the 20th century, um, Robert Chambers revolutionized whose reality counts by telling us we need to look at um, the problems of ontology as has been passed on in development studies and, and look at what does development look like from the experiences of people who are differently situated and the more marginalized they are, the better we are challenging the ontology of development. I think what this is helping us uh, look at is now, it's not just whose reality counts, but whose narratives of reality count. And I think this is really important because as has been presented just now, narratives are stories with a certain power dynamic to them. And if we are going to talk seriously about decolonizing academia vis-a-vis -vis development, then we have to look at whose narratives um, are we capturing, are we engaging with. And it's easier said than done because it's not just about, oh, getting the voices from the South to have a space in a book or getting the voices of the South um, to have a platform for self-expression. Um, the risk, of course, is that we create new reified identities of the West versus the rest, and the rest are this globalized, homogenized South, where we can pick and choose the choice, the voices that we like, and talk about that they're, giving, um, they're being given a platform. And I think the issue here, of course, is that um, uh, as one of the chapters beautifully talked about authenticity, well, actually, what do we mean by authenticity? Because ultimately, as with anywhere around the world, there are multiple legitimacies in any context, be it in the global south or be it in the west. 
And by that I mean that there is no such thing as someone from the so-called country X speaking on behalf of the marginalized in country X. He or she, if they are situated in a, in a university in the UK or in the, in, in the US, already have probably privileges to do with class, privileges to do with education, some of the privileges that uh, Michael um, and others have raised. Um, so legitimacy in the, is in the eye of the beholder. And as we know, there are multiple beholders with multiple ways of seeing the world. So how do we actually capture that multivocality without necessarily creating a hierarchy of legitimacies as this person speaks on behalf of this community? Um, and I think the, the one wonderful thing that I, I took from it, other than the idea of multiple legitimacies and multiple um, uh, sites of contestation is the idea of let us not go into this idea of uh, uh, purist thinking or we will go for the voice of the most authentic and we create these binaries of this is the secular this is the religious this is the elite from the west this is the grassroots from the global south this is the um, uh, downtrodden, this is the privileged, this is the, uh, um, uh, the, the real traditionalist versus the modern. Um, and that is again being challenged in a wonderful way in Caroline Seger's um, chapter where she critiques or she talks about artists saying, don't call me a traditional Nigerian artist. Uh, this idea of creating these wonderfully romanticized stereotypes of I come from X place, therefore I will represent the traditional. Um, and so what is the solution? What are we talking about here? Well, just like we talked about multiple legitimacies here, we're talking about um, hybrid identities, hybrid spaces, uh, recognizing um, the, the way in which um, people's identities um, is not to be represented in purest terms versus more um, uh, non-purest terms. And it comes across in our understandings of things like religion, um, where we know that across the world, people do not follow a particular doctrine um, in a particular way, unless they're ideologues who are seeking to uh, Im impose particular versions of governance. But for the most part, people engage in syncretic expressions of they pick and choose from different cultures, from different norms, from different ways of seeing the world. And we see this in India, where there is a lot of syncretic engagement. And then, of course, there's what people hold as sacred. Indigenous people hold something that is sacred, which goes beyond the idea of religion in its religion versus the secular. There is a combination of ways in which people express their agency, which helps us go beyond the idea that we will decolonize by searching for the purest, the traditionalist, and creating new, um, new hierarchies and new binaries. Um, and, and I think that is where this idea of well, what do we do when, our position, when we are in positions of privilege by virtue of class, by virtue of education, by virtue of profession, and so forth. Should anyone who is situated in the West um, or situated in privileged private universities in the global south decide that they will not engage with development and step aside because development has been colonized for decades and centuries. I think this is where I think Hillary Standing's chapter 
on fiction becomes really helpful because she talks about being open and honest about our positionality and standpoint, which of course anyone who knows feminist scholarship would be familiar with those terms because it was part of the whole idea of let's not talk about our um, capturing or our narratives as being neutral, as being objective, but let's be honest about where we stand by putting into our um, stories, our narratives, what our standpoint is and what our positionality is. And I think it's that honesty, that being, um, um, being very clear and, and dissecting the power dynamics and the power hierarchies that enable us, independently of where we are situated, to engage with the, the power dynamics. I'm not saying that this, um, this eliminates uh, or just makes things fine. This is not the magic bullet to power dynamics on the ground or in academia. I'm just saying it provides us with one way of broadening the canvas by, by talking about, um, uh, in a reflexive way, uh, where we are in uh, the academic discussions that we have. Now, the other wonderful thing, this brings me to the second point. So I've talked a bit about the idea of in our bid to decolonize development and narratives about development, um, what are the pitfalls and ways in which this um, book helpfully helps us to bring out some of the complexity. But there is another way which I think this book helps us, um, which has to do with pathways of development, which is um, that two points um, on this. The first is that the pathways through which we have imagined change have been deeply circumscribed. Um, we talked about uh, change through bringing people together in awareness, raising workshops, uh, bringing people together uh, through manuals and toolkits and all kinds of things that had became fashions and fads. Um, but those spaces where um, art and music and um, subversion was happening, graffiti, murals, etc., etc., were ones that had been neglected because they were very fluid, um, and I would dare say that things that, the more they are intangible, the more that development thinking grapples with. Um, the more they are in the realm of the immaterial, the more they become difficult to measure, to, um, to capture, and then to perhaps uh, assess their impacts. But they are, as this book tells us, a very important dimension of people's sense of well-being, of who they are. Um, I don't know when was the last time anyone read a book about pathways of development in which the word joy was mentioned. Joy, just joy. You know, it, it is almost as if you need to go up a, a certain set of uh, uh, steps uh, and once you reach a certain position and class, then you can talk about joy. Um, and I think this is where it's really important, the idea of the neglected repertoires. What repertoires are essential for people's well-being, um, feature in their stories about who they are, that have been sidelined because they're very difficult to grapple with, in the more straight-jacketed versions of how change happens. Um, and I think um, it, it, repertoires of heritage, for me, are one of them. They, are, they feature in various elements of the book. Uh, because heritage is, is often, we think heritage, that means gerontocratic, patriarchal, elitist. 
because the image of heritage that often comes to our mind is museums and, and fancy um, uh, uh, festivals and so forth. But heritage is what people hold dear about the stories they've heard about themselves and who they are, and often narrated orally. And they become very powerful means of resisting uh, more mainstream narratives about who they are and their place in the world. Um, and I think this is where there's a great deal of the idea of broadening the canvas by understanding what people make of their heritage, which is often uh, popular um, as opposed to um, elite. It's often passed on by women. Uh, doesn't mean it's not passed on by men, but often women become intergenerational. And youth become major actors in the subversion of mainstream heritages by creating their own counter-heritages um, in many contexts. And the reason why I'm raising heritage is because I want to link it to a, a point I mentioned earlier, which is that in many parts of the world, people struggle with more conventional ways of protesting. It doesn't mean it doesn't happen. Of course it's happening. It's happening in Iran as we speak. Um, but they have to find safer ways of um, uh, engaging in dissent that is not in the overt way. So they will use heritage as ways of showing that they're not challenging the status quo in overt ways, but actually the content of what they're passing on is very subversive. Um, but there is a caution, there is a word of caution here, as has been just mentioned, which is that we need to not romanticize the pathways of change. Suddenly, everybody wants to fund heritage projects, or everybody wants to fund music projects, or everybody wants to fund art, because that is the, the hip and cool spaces through which people are transformed. And I think the, the lesson here is the caution of things being appropriated, things being um, then um, instrumentalized for agendas that are highly uh, anathema to the idea of liberation, the idea of um, collective um, uh, dissidence or collective search for, um, for resistance to power dynamics that are oppressive. Um, so I think this is where the, the book has wonderfully moved away from romanticizing pathways of change, but said, but there are spaces in which people are challenging um, power dynamics in, in very powerful ways, which we, be, we need to be mindful for. Um, just on the idea of pathways, I mean, in, and, and on the power of, yes, music has been used for propaganda purposes, as we see with the Ku Klux Klan, and as we saw with the Nazi regimes and so forth, but it has the power to subvert in ways that go beyond the idea of bring me your leader. Um, I'm just thinking of Iran, where Shirvan Hajipur's song, Barai, which means fall. In that song in Iran at the moment, where of course there is the ongoing resistance and dissidence against the regime for the killing of a 22-year-old um, Iranian Kurdish woman who was seen as not modestly uh, uh, dressed enough. Um, in that song, there are 28 grievances mentioned. <coughs> And within 38 hours of this song being released, it had been downloaded 40 million times. So what did they do? The regime brought this, you know, the typical bring me the leader, bring me the author of the, the song. They imprisoned him and they said, bring down that song. But by then it had circulated beyond the possibility of it being constrained. And I think it's this idea of the potential of finding repertoires that are more difficult 
to, to contain and to circumscribe. That is, this is very exciting. Um, and I just think of, of um, my own work where we were looking at heritage as resistance and dissidence, and we looked at the spaces where um, on the streets, and I can't mention the, the, the countries, but they would say, you know, um, you know, stop singing that song, and people would start going, <laughs> you know, it's ways of just finding subversion and dissidence. Um, and, and when the song stopped, well, they then moved on to um, cartoons. And when the cartoons stopped, they moved. the idea of fluid ways which make it more difficult to stop the medium once you stop the leader or once you stop the, the artist behind it. So I'm going to, I'm going to, um, uh, to very, um, the, the one of the wonderful things, again, about um, the idea of broadening the canvas as in challenging the reductionisms that sometimes we are tempted to fall into is the issue of climate change reductionism because we knew that climate change as an area initially was supposed to be the remit of science, development of science. We will tell you the percentages, the Celsius, the, the quality of the soil, the, 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 what's happened to the water, and you will comply because we know, we have that expertise, knowledge. Um, and then, of course, it became more complicated, and a, a lot more uh, scholars began to challenge this, saying, well, if you want to bring about climate justice, you need to look at how people are adapting, how people are um, working with, coping with what's going on, and what kind of repertoires do they have. And this is where the um, chapter by Shahpar Selim on uh, repertoires of adaptation in Bangladesh, a country where obviously the issue of climate change is so important, comes in. Because here he looks at um, the importance, Selim's article looks at, yes, we're not saying that there isn't a space for scientific knowledge, there is, but how do you blend scientific knowledge with understanding people's repertoires for telling their stories about what needs to happen to adapt to the new realities? And I think of the work that we've been doing, um, which I was trying to explain to someone the other day, and they were telling me, look, I'm really sorry, but this doesn't make sense from an economic point of view. This is... I think he was very polite. He didn't want to say this was rubbish. Um, but I was explaining that for centuries, in many parts of the Middle East, people engaged in something called the gleaning of the harvest, that they would purposely not collect every single potato that you know, has the crops, not every single fava bean, not every, that parts of the land would be deliberately left. And these parts sometimes would be on the edges, sometimes would be across different communities would have different ways of gleaning the harvest. And the idea is that anyone, anyone could go onto the land and take off this harvest. And part of it was protecting people's dignity that you could go in at night. So no one knew, there was no means of, you know, uh, do, you know what is your, are you under the poverty belt? Are you over the poverty belt? How many pots and pans do you have in your home? When was the last time you, there wasn't, you know, when was the last time you had a start? There wasn't any of that. There were, the land was kept. And these were seasons in which the land was kept. And it was part of the moral economy of these communities that this was a way in which you recognize that it isn't just those that are economically marginalized, but people can sometimes, even the best of people can sometimes have bad crops. Um, but the point is, it didn't make economic sense in the, in the sense that, what are they getting out of it? 
because these are very small uh, crop holders. We're not talking here about the, just the, you know, the feudal orders. We're talking about very small. Um, why are they doing this intergenerationally? And it doesn't really make sense from an economic point of view because, of course, um, it, of course, they would make a lot more money that they badly needed. But here, the idea is that this heritage has been passed on and they believe there's a blessing for them and the community when this is kept. Um, and, and that idea of a blessing, a heritage blessing, is really important for social cohesion, but it's also for joy, because this is the time in which children can go and take whatever they want. And they, they call it in Arabic, tasif, which is summering. It comes from the word sif, which is summer. Even though this is kept, the, the children are able to collect this, not just in summer, but whenever the crop is, is happening. So I'm going to very quickly finish. Now, where does this leave us? Um, so we've talked about the decolonization. We've talked about the potential, but also caution against romanticizing the pathways of alternative change. But it does leave us with a massive conundrum, which is that our logical frameworks, our theories of change, our inputs and outputs and um, outcomes and impact studies are just, they can't cope with this because they just can't, it's, it's, it's a challenge. Um, it doesn't mean it's an impossible challenge, it just means we've, we need to rethink, again, measurements, we need to rethink um, uh, 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 results-based management frameworks, we need to think about how are we going to tell the stories so that people uh, are able to see them as meaningful um, and not just as anecdotal, um, and, and see the robustness and the rigor of it, but at the same time, uh, it, it, capturing those immaterial dimensions, those dimensions of experimentation uh, are afforded. And it's a challenge. We can do it. We just have to think about how we can broaden the canvas of methodologies, of evaluations and learning. Thank you so much, Mary. There's so much food for thought there. I was, I was going to invite the panel to come back and comment, but I think probably because time is moving on, it would be better for us to move straight to some questions and to get some participation in the room. So um, <clears throat> I think the way that, unless anyone has anything, anything further that they want to say. Okay, so um, what I propose to do is to take three questions first. Um, I'd love to get questions from students as a priority um, for, you know, just to try and open it up, because I really want people to engage with this. We haven't got a lot of time. We will be able to continue talking in the reception outside for those of you who are able to stay and um, you know, talk to us. So we will try and continue it there. But um, I think we've got a roving mic in the room, haven't we? Have we? No. No. <laughs> <laughs> I was misinformed. Okay, it's a small room. Yeah, so, um, yeah, let's... Yeah, shouting is very empowering. Thank you. Yeah. We, have, we have found a mic. Oh, we have got one. Okay. So, so the question at the back there, let's... It will take three, and then I'll invite anybody who would like to respond. If you have a question for a particular person, obviously, let us know. Um, yeah. I was just wondering... Uh, what were your thoughts about, because obviously we're talking about uh, development, like us having different forms, etc. like, you know, having a room between the person who wants to change things and then the person who's going to receive it, and the, there are different ways, music, movies, etc. I was just wondering if uh, the book tackles the dangers of 
because uh, of, of like simplifying, you know, uh, social groups, etc. Because you give them a common uh, bank of knowledge, but like uh, how do we assess the intentions of this bank of knowledge? Because I, I, I mean, I just graduated from here and I work now. And I'm seeing the, the dangers of like centralizing, uh, for example, um, information, etc., or like bringing together stakeholders because it's like a form of, of like of power over them. So I'm just wondering if like this means how do you make sure that what you are telling people, like how do you because this question of legitimacy, what yeah. is legitimate and what is not, and how do you? Speak? Thank you. How many, put your hands up if you've got a question, and then I will, yeah, so uh, Kate, um, James, and then the person, um, yeah, <laughs> go on, Kate. Okay, I want to follow on the same thing. I hear a lot of different ways in which art is coming in. As an object of study, so we could study protest songs, as a medium for mobilizing for change, and as a medium of communicating development knowledge. And I think those are all very, very different things. And in the final case, that's where I have problems, and that relates most to the, the first presentation. Whereas uh, these kinds of artistic things can be used for subversion, they can equally be used for persuasion, manipulation. Um, I think it is significant that, say, uh, someone like Shakira was used for the presentation of the SDGs. I don't think that was to make the SDGs more meaningful. I think it had a, a very different point. Yeah. Trump is a master of narrative, um, but he uses that to deflect from the facts. So I'm really wondering, what exactly are we talking about here? In what way should art be brought in? And to what extent are we taking account used for manipulating uh, development and deflecting from the realities that we should be taking into account. Thanks, it's a great important <coughs> Yes, hi. Um, I'm a student of, I'm a master's student studying development management. Um, and I was looking to do my dissertation in the role of cultural expression and artistic expression in development as intervention methods. Um, and my first thought when I, I thought about my topic was, how can I justify this to my, my supervisors? And I feel like I read something. <laughs> Um, I read something from Susan Sontag's Essays of Interpretations, where she feels uh, she says that historically, there was always a sense of needing to defend the arts, art as auxiliary to truth, art as auxiliary to development, and many other disciplines. So, um, yeah, do you, uh, I was just wondering if you had the same kind of challenges and uh, uh, conundrums when you were uh, participating in your, your research and uh, how to overcome this. Great question, thank you. Um, let's take, I'm going to take five actually. So, uh, you at the back there and then James, and then we'll, then we'll have some time to respond. Hi, thank you very much for um, like introducing uh, your book and all these topics. Um, I think f following on from some of the similar questions from before, one thing that I think potentially with, um, I know there was a joke before about uh, Elon Musk and sort of like you know, freedom of speech, and I think when it comes to um, like the production of art and its impact on 
the perceptions and ideas of um, everyone in society that 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 we're talking about. I, I think my question is, how do we ensure that in the production process of art, when we're looking at some of the major like um, places in our world where a, a great proportion of art is produced, thinking of sort of Hollywood when we're talking about um, the film industry or um, the fashion industry, which is in sort of you know, Milan or these sorts of places, how do we ensure that you know, those sorts of places potentially are quite far removed from um, where a lot of like development issues might actually be like really felt. So how do we ensure that those issues are then um, reflected in the way in which we're producing art? Thank you. James, you go for the last question. Okay. Oh, should I take that? You can always shout. <laughs> <laughs> I can shout. <laughs> I've been very quiet during my sabbatical. Um, I want to congratulate the the, the authors and the work that's been going on over the last two decades in this domain, I think is absolutely central to development studies. And so it's a big contribution. My comment actually is connected to what Kate raised, because you know I'm a creature of protest music and, uh, and poetry of the 1960s and 70s, very important. So I, I think identifying that is, is really important. But this, to what extent should we really be looking at this as a, a battlefield, a terrain of contestation at the ideological level, which, which is so sharply represented by Trump, Bolsonaro, and in another way, by Hindutva in India. And so, so, because so much of what you had to say is about, you know, what I got out of this in my life as a as a means to protest, as alternative voices. But right now, this is really being harnessed mm -hmm. by, across the political spectrum by different so, you know, sources of power. And then if we think about it, because you didn't once mention ideology, but if you think about this as a, as a kind of battlefield or a, new ter a terrain of struggle, not new at all, actually quite an old terrain of struggle, to be able to see how this, these forms can all be used in very invidious ways as well. Thanks. Great, thanks. Five great questions. Um, I'm going to leave it to uh, the panelists to, to pick up whichever ones they feel able to respond to and appeal to them. So, Michael, do you want to go first? <laughs> You haven't had a moment to talk about your contributions. <laughs> no, I haven't. I'm, I'm happy to. I mean, I totally take the point about ideology and the use of arts for purposes that are not, you know, that, are, that, that we would disagree with. I mean, I think that's absolutely fundamental to the, to the work, you know, that we're doing. We're, we're, I mean, we're trying to, I think, open up these... Uh, terrains of contestation, um, and also the, the the relations of cultural production that lie behind these um, art forms as well. I mean, that's incredibly important, and we try to move into that in the um, in the music article. But I think you're absolutely right. This is none of this is new. I mean, the point is that you know, music, for example has always been a battleground around um, 
you know, rights and ideologies. I mean, this is absolutely nothing new. I mean, the, the, what is perhaps new is different ways in which it's become commodified. And, um, you know, we, we talk about that in the article too. But let, because time is so short, I know people have to go. Let me, um, let me ask you, Michael, do you want to go first? Or? Yeah, I'll, just a short riff on the, on the, on the opening question. I, I'm, since I work in an organization that um, advises governments, and that, that often I'm part of those processes, this, this idea of, um, of official order and, and the, the and necessity, ultimately, of going from plurality down to a finite set of options. You can't have 20 different ways of running elections. You can't have 20 different ways of running police to court, police or courts. There has to be, in the classic Berberian sense, sort of a monopoly on, on how force is ultimately enacted, which means one of the big tasks of development to me is, is, is how the heterogeneity doesn't get uh, smished into, into, one, into a singularity, it's how you create, and this is and this is why we use the word legitimacy and that, and and all of those the the contestation that surrounds that ultimately has to do the work of being able to turn the vast arrays of difference into something that can then actually be enacted into schools, into roads, into into hospitals, into into some form of singularity with regards to how medical procedures are enacted. Um, I, if I had time, I would go into a longer just, just example from a, a meeting I was in, in in Canada a few months ago, which was around the allocation of $26 billion of Canadian federal money to First Nations communities for uh, as part of a process of uh, child and family welfare services. And it was an unbelievable meeting for me to be in. I'm neither Canadian nor involved in either child and welfare service, but I was there for methodological reasons for some of the other kind of work that I've done, but the, what was magical about this conversation, uh, and this was, I think, a product of decades of work by Canadian civil society and by government itself, to create a space where 10 different representatives of 10 different First Nations communities, representatives ranging from the Dean of the School of Social Work at the University of Montreal, uh, down to government officials, were all able to work around a, a space for days at a time around how in this wrenching imperative is going to get solved with a $26 billion ticking away that has to be spent by six months time. That's the allocation window they've got. That's how, that's the, that's the work this space has to do is to turn ontologically orthogonal ways of apprehending and comprehending <coughs> words like neglect, right? and how you turn that into something that can actually then channel $26 billion in ways that's legally sound, that ways that enables it to be held accountable, to write reports on this and to be assessed so that we can judge whether this $26 billion was spent in ways that are in accordance with national law, and how it's going to accommodate all the heterogeneity within First Nations communities about what this one word, we had three hours on one word, neglect, what that actually means. And why that was magical for me was that everything we're talking about here, which then manifests itself in popular culture, but the underlying analytic issue is how all this heterogeneity of claiming of the most existentially important task that we have as humans, which is to 
raise the next generation, right? How that, how the anthropology of all that meets the Scottian thin simplifications <laughs> and legibility imperatives over here. How do you make that work? There isn't a formula for that. There's only a space you can create and protect long enough for the legitimacy to be born, to be created and extended such that whatever outcome prevails, which will be inherently contested, inherently imperfect for many of those that are in that space, they live with it because they themselves are in part of a process by which all of that compromising, all of that simplifying, necessary simplifying was done to get you what you had to do in order for $26 billion to flow. And I think that's, that's a, that's to me, is the kind of work we need to be doing much more of in development. Um, I'll just briefly remark on the question about how do we ensure that production processes of art, for example, things that are produced in Hollywood sort of resonate with, you know, the reality of, of places where these issues are, are issues. And I, I just thought it was interesting, one of the things that occurred to me as I was doing my analysis of the, of the BBC 100 Women radio programs is, where are these narratives coming from? Like, how did they get created in the production process, you know, because the, the journalists themselves was, I think, from Uganda, and the, the, the girls themselves that he was interviewing were, were to some extent, espousing the narratives as well. So it was almost like the narrative in itself takes on a sort of a life where it seeps into everybody's understanding of how things work, you know? So it, it, it feels a bit simplistic to say that it sort of originated in a particular place. I think, I think even, you know, I think narratives, I mean, I come from, you know, I studied here at the LSC, and we have this, we had this tradition called the social representations tradition in psychology, which is all about how social representations can kind of take on a life of their own beyond, like, at any particular origin point. So I think it's just a little bit more complex, maybe, than thinking about just, you know, like, oh, the fault lies in Hollywood, so far removed from where things are happening. Dennis. I just want to end a little bit on this, the question that King and others brought up about the way that art can be used to support a position that we might not, or to kind of try and put forward positions, uh, Trumpism or whatever and so on. I think it's definitely true. I think uh, there's no doubt about that. But I think it's also true of the standard, the so-called standard mainstream development kind of knowledge uh, forms. I mean, uh, I think almost 70 years ago, Darren Huff wrote a great book called um, Lies, Damn Lies and Statistics. Um, I mean, neither has actually written pretty eloquently about the way in which randomized controls trials are effectively epistemological obfuscation. Um, and I think, you know, in that sense, this is where I think I come back to James's point that it's a battlefield. This is a kind of uh, throwing a bomb in the, oh, perhaps I'm going to be too dramatic, but throwing kind of a, something in the kind of debate and saying, right, you know, we need to actually kind of broaden things out. I mean, there's one thing, science is fundamentally reductive. The arts are expensive. And that's the most important thing. And by creating a space in which we can start thinking about the arts in development as kind of, and having it subvert epistemologies of understandings, suddenly we can perhaps be, uh, start thinking differently um, about this. And do so in a way which, you know, I'll just end with an expression. I mean, the expression is life imitate art. Uh, art and art imitates life. It's not science imitates life. Um, so in that sense, we perhaps should be kind of <coughs> art on the table, making it very central.
Possibly, but perhaps yeah. a lot of qualitative social science remains really boring to read as well. I mean, I think we, we, we can we can learn. I mean, we can learn a little bit more kind of uh, artistic expression there too. Marius, I know that you'd like to come back on one of those questions, and then we will finish and continue outside. Yes, I think I mentioned ideology because there is recognition, and I mentioned the Ku Klux Klan and the Nazis because this this is you know there is a there's always been ideological struggles. I think the difference here. Um, is the fact that we are now doing two things. We as we're hoping that we are, as academics, we are seeking to become more multivocal and therefore there are, we're recognizing the limitations of the academic narrative and therefore we are trying to capture ways in which repertoires and multivocality exists and, and, and engage with it as it is as opposed to try and transform it into something else before we engage. Um, and the second thing is the multiple legitimacies because of the way in which technology has led things to spread so quickly. Um, it, the idea that within you know, 38 hours, 40 million downloads of a song means that there are ways in which technology is uh, just create, changing the space in which we are engaging. It doesn't mean it's making ideology less or more. It just means it is affecting the, the power dynamics with which we we're engaging, which we have to be cognizant of. Um, it, it, there will always be homogenizing political projects. That's, that's how it has and it will continue to be. But it is being able to then engage with where the subversion and repertoires are without romanticizing them. I'll stop there. Thank you. So I'd just like to thank our panel and all of you for coming along tonight. I mean, the book is very much about trying to set out an agenda, trying to as, as we were saying, uh, broaden the canvas. And, and I hope that we've given you a flavor of the 12 very different and diverse chapters that are contained in there. And I hope that you'll be intrigued enough, um, whether you agree that this canvas should be broadened or not, we hope you'll be intrigued enough to read a few of those chapters and to, um, and I know that we would all, I think I can speak for everybody to say that we would all love to continue these conversations in, into the future. Perhaps you can use it to justify your focus. To <laughs> 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 but it certainly helps justify your focus. <laughs> yeah, so thanks very much, everybody. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.